Welcome back to Burgundy Blogcast. This is Brent from Burgundy Blog. Uh, this is Season 6, Episode 4. It is the night of Sunday, April 26, 2020. And the draft concluded yesterday, and a bunch of things happened for the Redskins. Not only did they make five more picks, but they also traded away their best player of the last 10 years. So, even though I did a pod two nights ago outlining some of my thoughts about Chase Young and Antonio Gibson, I thought I would check in again to try and elevate the discussion surrounding Trent Williams and these other new additions. Also because I'm desperately still clinging to the excitement of the draft, since there very well may not be any more cool football things actually happening for a very long time. Buzzkill! All right, so Trent got traded literally moments before the fourth round kicked off. In fact, it was a pretty dramatic sequence if you were following along either on TV or even better on Twitter. There were like a few vague rumblings of some action finally with Trent starting at like 11.30 with the draft scheduled to resume at noon. First, I saw something from NFL Draft Diamonds, I think, that was very vague. And then a couple of the local reporters started to indicate that it seemed like something was happening. And then I think Josina Anderson was first to tweet that Trent was being traded. And then very quickly after that, Rappaport and some other big national guys chimed in with the full details that indeed Trent was being traded to Kyle Shanahan and the San Francisco 49ers for a fifth rounder in this year's draft and a third rounder in the 2021 draft. And then all of that seemed to be made official like just minutes before um, that first pick, uh, I guess, by Cincinnati on the uh, first pick of the fourth round on the third and final day of the draft. So obviously that was a transaction that one or both teams had decided beforehand needed to either happen or not um, before anybody even went on the clock. Pretty cool example of deadlines definitely driving deals. Shout out to the local beat people, by the way, for I think foreshadowing pretty well that the most likely destination for a trade if it were to go down on Saturday was indeed the 49ers. In particular, I think I recall J.P. Finley and John Kime suggesting that once the uh, Minnesota option had fallen by the wayside, just like the Browns, Jets, and Bucks before it, those guys in particular seemed to have a pretty good sense ahead of time that um, San Fran might, might be where it ended up going. So I did some tweeting about this already, and I don't think my opinion deviates too much from general consensus, which is that obviously as a player, as a left tackle between those white lines, Trent Williams, even at about 32 years old, and even having weathered a non-trivial list of injuries, he's clearly worth much more than a fifth and a future third. He just is. And in fact, Kyle Smith acknowledged that very bluntly in his presser after the draft. In fact, he said Trent's value is a first. By the way, that's kind of a bold thing to admit for a top executive only hours after trading him for so much less. But he further explained, and I agree, that the inescapable context, including his holdout last year and the very public acrimony between the player and the team, devalued Trent in a way that probably just could not have been overcome even by the most expert of negotiator. With everybody in the world knowing that Trent Williams didn't want to be a Redskin, and the Redskins not wanting to roster Trent Williams. And with him having just one year left on his contract, and in light of the fact that contrary to what was believed for some time, Trent Williams probably would have only delivered the Redskins ultimately a fifth round compensatory pick in 2022 had he 
even played out this upcoming season and then walked in free agency. With all of that undeniable and common knowledge in the league, and also with so many high-ceiling tackles being available in the first round this year, the Redskins just were unable to conjure enough leverage to induce an offer even roughly approximating his actual worth. Now, do I think that the Redskins could have fetched quite a bit more if they had been open to trading him last year? Yes, obviously. Possibly a first rounder, almost certainly a second rounder. Obviously, those assets would have been extremely valuable in this year's draft, but for that, I blame primarily Bruce Allen, which is futile. After that, do I think that even the new regime, meaning Rivera and Kyle Smith together, could have possibly done better than this if they had shopped him more publicly and aggressively either in the first couple months of this year or in the days leading up to the start of free agency? That I don't know. I'm not sure we as fans can be confident in the answer to that. It's possible, but in all my reading and researching, I never really had the sense that they were turning down a second. And I would say that while in general, future draft picks, like any draft pick in next year's draft is generally less valuable than a pick in this year's draft by a round. So traditional thinking might lead you to believe that next year's third is merely this year's fourth, meaning that they basically dealt him for a fourth and a fifth. I think the Redskins are operating from a position where next year's third is actually pretty close or even identical in value to this year's third, because they don't really care too much if they win this year. At least that's my suspicion, and I've explained it previously. So could they, earlier on in this year, have done better than a third and a fifth? I'm not sure, but probably not that much better. So my conclusion is that the current brain trust, Ron and Kyle, ultimately did, I think, okay with this situation. I don't think they botched it. I don't exactly think they aced it. I don't think they pulled a rabbit out of the hat. I'd say clearly it did linger as an off-season distraction, and it's at least not obvious that they optimized value. But I think they acquitted themselves, and now he's gone. It's over. And I think, first of all, all of us, everybody listening to this, I'm sure feels relief and um, a certain satisfaction from escaping the seemingly never-ending dialogue about how his relationship with the only NFL team that's ever employed him was going to conclude. I mean, there's been so much back and forth between the team and with him and his Neanderthal agent. I mean, so much public back and forth. So you can only imagine how much private back and forth there had to have been. In that sense, I'm glad to be done with it, and I think probably most of you are too, but it would be a little primitive of us to make it that simple. It really, really sucks that his Redskins career ended the way it did. He is a supremely talented player. He was really productive for our team for a very long time. His style of play was also very fun to watch and very fun to root for, and regardless of whether the Redskins are good or bad, obviously they've been primarily bad for so long, but either way, we watch to be entertained and to enjoy what we're watching on some pretty fundamental level. And he was really fun to watch. And before this all hit the fan, he was, he was you know, one of the top few favorite players for most Redskins fans. He's a silverback. He's a dominating force. And I think this weird thing happened last year where he didn't play and Donald Penn came in at the last second off of his couch, uh, you know, for a very low salary. And I think the narrative on Penn was that like, hey, he was, he was pretty good. Like there was barely any drop off from Trent Williams to Donald Penn. So, you know, that there was that like this transitional period where we were losing Trent in stages because he wasn't playing, but he was still on the team. And now that he's off the team, it doesn't feel that different immediately from last year. However, a couple things on that. Donald Penn wasn't quite as good, in my opinion, as some have made him out. He, 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 no, he wasn't perfect. He gave up some sacks. He gave up some pressures. I mean, all offensive linemen do, but he wasn't like anywhere near the top quartile of the league in, you know, for his position. And also, I think, by the way, not to deviate too far, but 
there's little doubt that he affected the way the team was calling plays. Okay, he may not have been just outrageously exposed by whiffing on edge rushers, but Donald Penn being in the game instead of Trent Williams definitely limited what Jay Gruden and then eventually Bill Callahan slash Kevin O'Connell and or whoever else may have been calling plays throughout that season, given their incredibly jumbled strategy for calling plays. Penn being in there instead of Trent certainly narrowed down the playbook, and there's no doubt in my mind that it limited yardage and scoring. So anyway, this narrative exists that Penn was fine, and I think too many of us took it a little bit too casually that we were in the process of losing, if not the best, because honestly, I'm not sure there was ever a time he was literally the best left tackle, but certainly a top five left tackle in the sport. We have been spoiled by him for a long time. Yes, he's missed some time with injuries, uh, some time with suspension. But we as Redskins fans, having a bad team, have come, or at least had come, to take for granted that the blind side was not going to be an issue. And uh, that time has come and gone. It's going to be, I think, kind of a harsh wake-up call, no matter who on the current roster the Redskins trot out there um, in week one in September. There is an uncomfortable new normal where we're going to have to worry a little bit about who is hunting down Dwayne from the backside in a way that many, many other teams and fans uh, you know, always have. So in the very big picture, I'm not glad that he's gone at all. It's a bummer. He's too young to have been run out of town or run himself out of town. He should have had three or four more really productive years here. It just really sucks that the whole thing with his cancer happened, that the, the mutual alienation of him from the team happened. Everybody involved has culpability. I think, unfortunately, his reputation and his legacy here was tarnished. Bruce Allen's was already in the gutter, and, and this only, you know, drove it deeper. But, but Trent was, you know, for, his, for, for all his problems, was an ambassador for the team for a long time. I mean, he was really, he was, he was in some ways the face of the Redskins. I mean, he punched Richard Sherman. He always stood up for Kirk Cousins. He was one of the very, very few players. For Stretch is the only player on the team that every other player in the NFL definitely respected and or feared. And, you know, in an alternate universe, he finishes out his career here. He's an all-time Redskin. He quickly goes into the ring of fame. He's beloved for generations thereafter. And I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to be a prisoner of the moment. I'm not positive that all of that goodwill has been completely destroyed. Maybe he will eventually go down as a lifelong skin, but it's, it's in serious jeopardy because of the way he and his agent handled this. And it's just, it's so disappointing and, and really shocking if you step back that so many of us are actually happy and, and have reason to be happy that now he's gone. It's really twisted. It's Bruce Allen's final parting gift from exile. And I sure hope that it marks, in some way, the end of the past and the beginning of the future. So, immediately after the trade, the fourth round starts. The Bengals pick some dude, a linebacker. And then the Redskins picked, um, well, Trent's heir apparent, probably. Sadiq Charles, tackle, LSU. By now, you've all had a chance to research that pick. You know a little bit about him. I'm not going to try and act like I know a ton more about him than you do at this point, but obviously I've done my reading and my watching and my digging. And I think, first of all, that was a great pick. Great pick. Great way to use that pick. Obviously, Trent's absence left a screaming need because the guy they picked in the third round, notice that third round, Jerron Christian a couple years ago was picked in the third round, a round before we're picking Sadiq Charles, the presumed Trent replacement. Okay, Jerron Christian picked in the third round a couple years ago should right now have developed into the guy who could immediately step in and play for Trent. 
And while I don't think that's impossible, because who knows what he's done to change his body and technique and mindset since we last saw him in the field at the end of last year, but he hasn't been good in his career. He has not given us much reason for confidence that he's the new dude. In fact, when the Redskins were starting to play more young players last year as the season was slipping away, they really didn't. They didn't play him a lot, which is a super red flag for him, I think, and his future. They have him. He'll be in the competition for that spot. But anyway, they um, identified Sadiq Charles as the best player available in this draft class. One, again, that was considered very deep in tackles, at least high-end tackles. And they picked him there in, in that slot a couple minutes after Trent left. I think it's a good pick. I'm happy with it because he's a good, he's a good, very high ceiling player. He played, um, he played a lot at a key position for a team that was completely dominant and had a dream season and won the national championship. And he's got good size. He's got a lot of tread on the tires because he's coming out a year early. In most cases, I, I generally like that. I think there was some thought. In fact, his coach Ed Orgeron said uh, recently that you know he thought if he had come back to school that there's a very high chance that um, Charles would have been a first or second round pick next year. He's got good size. He's very athletic. He was very effective and productive at LSU. So I trust Kyle Smith on that one, and I see what he sees in him. I mean, uh, he looks like a good, a good um, high potential, high ceiling player. Now I'm sure you also know um, that th- there are uh, clear reasons why he slipped to the fourth. He missed a fair amount of time at LSU, not only um, from one injury, the, the exact nature of which I'm, spe- I'm forgetting, but more recently, um, a, a fairly extended uh, suspension for what seems like um, chronic issues with marijuana. So he is not a clean prospect from the standpoint of off-field character and reliability. Furthermore, we just mustn't act like he even has a chance to become Trent Williams. He has good size, but not the same size. He's an inch shorter, and his arms are about an inch and a half longer. He weighed at the combine pretty close to Trent's playing weight, but that was after packing on like 30 pounds from his playing weight in January. So it remains to be seen both whether he can keep that weight on and also how he'll play at that weight. His scouting profiles also suggest that he just needs more functional strength, both at the point of attack and in anchoring. So he's, he's a good-looking prospect, and I think it was a good move. But the idea that he's going to step in and that he's definitely the day-one starter and that he will definitely be an above-average starter thereafter, uh, these are very presumptive. He might turn out to be really good, but he definitely might not. And so the Redskins are going to be uh, probably facing a competition between Jerron Christian, uh, their free agent signee Cornelius Lucas from the Bears, who's played on both sides, and then now Sadiq Charles. I don't know um, that it's, it's a sure thing that Sadiq Charles is going to win that battle uh, coming out of camp or whatever sort of camp they have. I'm also not at all certain that the Redskins will not add a, a starting caliber tackle in free agency between now and that time, and, and I'll come back to that in a bit. But in conclusion, on Sadiq Charles, I think it was a great pick, certainly not without risk, but in my opinion, acceptable risk. I think it was a better spot to take a high ceiling tackle with a little bit of risk than, than a safe tackle who's more likely to just be like a good backup. Because right now they need to be throwing a lot of darts at that position to try and find a long-term starter. And hopefully one of these dudes will pan out. This though obviously is one of those picks and, and probably in this draft, the, the one main pick where his coaching and his teaching and nurturing and development by not only Rivera, but also the new offensive line coach, Matsko, and also their player development staff, which is Malcolm Blacken and um, Doug Williams is primarily in, in that sort of role right now. These guys are going to need to be around him and on top of him and holding him accountable so that he doesn't waste his potential and so that he doesn't get suspended. I know the marijuana rules have been relaxed. I'm, I'm not completely up to speed on all the changes. 
I think if you fail a test for weed now, you're not immediately suspended, and instead you just go into some kind of counseling or follow-up. Nonetheless, he seems to have had a pretty chronic issue in college with this, and the Redskins are going to have to help him keep clean with all they've got. They're going to have to invest a lot in him to make their initial investment worthwhile. The Redskins' other pick in the fourth round made me really happy. Um, This was a guy who I've mentioned on this very podcast, I think in all three episodes this year, prior to this one. Antonio Gandy-Golden. If you're a listener, you knew about him because I've been talking him up. He went to Liberty, which is not far from where I live. I, uh, I know about him, and that's why I wanted him. I know about him from Buzz locally. I watched um, several of his games. I saw him play one time in person. I also watched him play UVA last year, and he was really good in that game. And UVA has a good defense. You guys are really going to like Antonio Gandy-Golden as you get to know him and as you get to start to watch him. He is big, super athletic, acrobatic catches, great hands. He's not a burner but he makes up for it with those other skills. You've probably already looked at his highlight reels. He's got a bunch of sick catches and long catches for touchdowns. I also happen to know that he's just a really good, solid kid who's not going to get into trouble, and he's not going to be a diva wide receiver. Some skepticism is warranted because he played at Liberty against, you know, not not top flight con- uh, competition. And I'll concede also that I thought he would he would drop a little further in the draft. I expected he would be available in the fifth or sixth. But I'm not surprised that they took him in the fourth. He's definitely not a reach. I was really happy when they grabbed him. I think he is going to be a good Redskin, and he happens to fit an area of need, which is playmaker and depth at the wide receiver position. Not that he's going to be depth, because frankly, I think at some point in his rookie year, it's likely he's going to be a starter. By the way, he can block too. He can block really well, which is one of Kelvin Harmon's strengths. So I think if they don't add another receiver in free agency to threaten for a starting job, even if he's not a week one starter, I think AGG will be lining up across from Terry McLaurin at some point in 2020 with the starting offense. And he is going to be exciting. He's going to be great in short yardage. He's going to be great in red zone. I think he could eventually be a little bit like what Josh, Josh Doxson was supposed to be, except they drafted him three rounds later, and I'm pretty sure he actually likes football. So I'm really happy with, with what Ron and Kyle did with the first four picks in this draft. I think that's a nice-looking foursome to lead off this draft class, especially considering that they didn't make a pick in the second round. I'm going to give the last four draft picks the group treatment because, to be honest, I don't know a whole lot about any of them, at least enough to give you some authoritative opinion. And I don't have super strong feelings that any of them were drafted too early, too late, or any of that. They got um, an interior lineman with some position versatility out of San Diego State, Ismail. Of all the picks, he seems kind of like the, the reachiest to me. A lot, of, a lot of projections had him as more of a sixth or seventh round guy, but I'm not going to split hairs over that. Everybody seems to like him. Um, decent size, highly athletic, blocked for a number of outrageously productive runners at San Diego State, and also supposedly he's very, very smart. I'm not at all sure they see him as a future starter, but never bad to add depth on the interior. Then they got Kalik Hudson out of Michigan. He's an interesting player who um, two years ago, everyone would have thought was eventually going to be a higher draft pick than, than he eventually was. I tweeted this, but for those of you who didn't see it, he, um, he was the successor at Michigan to Jabril Peppers in a unique defensive position they have there that they call Viper. Indeed, he's, he's one of these uh, hybrid safety linebackers, but more specifically, he did a lot of uh, pass rushing. Like his, his assignments were often oriented towards the backfield. So actually, in one game, he set or tied Michigan's record for tackles for a loss in a game with seven and a half. 
So certainly he's one of these guys with extreme position flex that Rivera clearly covets. He's not as fast or just as good overall as Peppers. At least he wasn't in college um, beyond his first year. It was kind of interesting that it seemed like he regressed a little bit after his, his first year of taking over that job. But he's, he's a player in that kind of mold, um, supposedly can kind of do it all on defense. Although Michigan fans have been telling me that he's not strong in coverage. So I would not, I would not take any of this to, to mean that he's going to be the guy assigned to like lock down tight ends. It doesn't really sound like that is his forte. I think instead he's going to be more of like a box safety who also is used very creatively to rush the passer. Then in the seventh round, they got this defensive back, Cameron Curl out of Arkansas, who was initially a corner and then a safety. So he can, he's, he's kind of a tweener in that respect. And then finally, James uh, Smith-Williams is an, um, I think a traditional 4-3 uh, defensive end out of NC State who was pretty good and, and had some flashes there and was very, very respected there, as far as I can tell, was a captain, but had a lot of serious injuries. I think he finished two seasons um, on the injured list. And although he's, you know, I think he was a pretty good prospect, but a lot of teams took him off their boards because he, he had such trouble staying healthy. I guess the way I feel about those, those last four guys in this draft class is that uh, it seems fine. I don't really have strong, strong feelings. I, there's nobody there who I knew about ahead of time that I thought should go much earlier. I don't see some obvious steal, but you never know. I mean, you, you know, that you usually don't see that kind of player coming. You know, you don't know it when it happens. And I've built, I've built up some good confidence in Kyle Smith. And I bet you one of those four guys pans out into a really, really solid contributor at the worst. If there's another interesting thing about this draft class as a whole, it's that it, it's, it's something that, that it does not include, which is tight end. I know a lot of people on Twitter are really pissed off that the Redskins didn't draft a tight end because yes, the depth chart looks pretty shallow at that position right now. And it's uh, probably going to be pretty important for, for Haskins to have an outlet at tight end. In fact, we've heard both Rivera and Scott Turner say that um, the offense is intended to feature a lot of plays with two and sometimes even three tight ends. And so right now you're looking at, well, who the hell is that going to be? Logan Thomas has never really done much. Richard Rogers has never really done much and has had a hard time staying healthy. Sprinkle, who's just kind of a dude. We, we know who he is. And so I think most of us assumed for good reason that uh, probably in the third or fourth round, they were going to try to add a guy who might be able to contribute uh, you know, early on. And they totally didn't. My, my guy in that range was Harrison Bryant. Um, they, you know, they passed on him a, a couple of times. Um, Adam Troutman is another guy that a lot of uh, fans liked in the third round and they uh, passed on him. And I'm here to say about that, that basically, I don't care that much. I don't care. It's okay. I, I said also this on Twitter, and I, I feel strongly and, and have for a long time that the draft is always much more about what you do get than what you don't get. You should never, I don't think any team should enter a draft, and I don't think teams do enter the draft and say, I have got to come away with X position or this year is just screwed. Because, and, and we, all, we all know this, we all want generally teams to pick the best player available in the draft. That's what you do. You want to get talent. Don't limit yourself and your ceiling as a team by settling for guys who aren't worth you know, the value that you're spending with any given pick just because you need a warm body in that position group when you start practice. If the value's not there, don't do it. Follow the value and then figure out another mechanism for obtaining your starting tight end. They could still trade for one. They could still sign one. Obviously, there's not just like recent pro bowlers sitting around to be had, but they also, I'm sure, don't really feel compelled to fix that problem right away or even this year. I mean, you can't fill every hole every year and they are on the ground floor. In fact, they're in, the, they're in construction of the basement level of this rebuild, uh, rebuild. 
And I, I just, I don't think that they feel that they have to get their future long-term starter at every position, and that includes tight end. So yeah, I mean, I would have loved to come away from this draft with a promising one, but you know, that's not how it fell, and it's fine. Don't beat them up about it. Instead, be glad that they followed the board, which I trust that they did. Then after the draft ended, um, the Redskins started signing, uh, as, as always, uh, some undrafted free agents, and they got two guys that I think are interesting and worth talking about, and um, two players that most draft, uh, draft Knicks would consider sort of preferred free agent types. The first is Thaddeus Moss, son of Randy Moss, who has um, a fairly high public profile, um, first because of his dad, and second because he played for, you know, the uh, undefeated national champion LSU Tigers last year and had a good year. He caught 40-some balls, he caught four touchdowns, he looked great in the national championship game, and uh, so he's a guy that a lot of fans had actually targeted um, for the Redskins to hopefully draft. And, and some people started asking me about whether they might target him as early as even the third round. But then, lo and behold, he went undrafted. So let me say, first of all, it's great that they got him. I think that's exciting. That's that that was, you know, of all of the players who went undrafted, he may have been the one that I was most hoping they would sign. I just finished talking about how, how big of a need it is. He had a great year on a good team, maybe not a great year, but a good year on a good team, was productive, was reliable, did not drop a single pass, my favorite thing about him, outstanding hands. He's a really good blocker. It's kind of weird, you would think Randy Moss's son would ultimately be known for his ability to uh, get open and catch the ball, and yeah, he can catch, but, but um, no, that's not really one of his strengths, uh, route running, speed, in fact, those are his weaknesses. He's pretty slow. He doesn't get separation, but he can block uh, his ass off. And that is the kind of thing that the Redskins have lacked at the tight end position for some time, I'm sure you know. Now, with Moss, I don't think he's ever going to be that dynamic pass catcher that Jordan Reed was. Of course, few are, but I don't think he's, they're even going to try to use him in that kind of way. But he can block and he can catch. And I think that's very promising. Now, we'll see if, if the speed is prohibitive. And furthermore, he's had some injury issues. Um, he had a Jones fracture in his foot. That was, I, I guess, discovered or confirmed at the combine. I think he had surgery after that. So there's a little bit of an injury flag there, and I suspect that played into him uh, going undrafted. I pointed out on Twitter um, in a tweet that, that, was, that was intended to cover sort of both sides of him as a prospect that, you know, his, I think I said his rep is boosted. His reputation is boosted by the fact that he's Randy Moss's kid. A lot of people took, took issue with that, which I think is crazy. I, I was not saying that I think his, his reputation among professional NFL scouts was boosted. I'm saying very quite clearly Fans are much more infatuated with this guy because he's Randy Moss's kid than they would have if his name was Thaddeus McRando and he had the same stat line and the same game film from last season. I mean, nobody really would have been talking about him that much. He was good, but not great. He's, he's, not, a, he's not a sexy athlete on film. So yeah, clearly his reputation publicly, I mean, among football, college football and, and NFL fans, has been boosted by the fact that he's Randy Moss's kid. And I also pointed out, you know, what I just said, which is that he's, he's not fast and he, he doesn't get separation. But, but then I think it resonated with people because uh, my, my, my main point actually was that he does not drop passes and he's a badass blocker in line. So basically, yes, I think you should be happy that they got him. I am happy that they got him, but I would, I would slam the brakes on like, well, there's, there's your answer. He's TE1. I mean, I, I don't even know if he's healthy yet. I think the spectrum of his early career, you know, runs all the way from useful starter to camp cut. 
I think I'm leaning more towards him at least making the roster, but you know, there's a lot of stuff that has to happen. We got to see how that shakes out. Anyway, good, good pickup, good signing. So the other one that's going a little bit under the radar is Steven Montez, a quarterback out of Colorado. It's not a shock that he didn't get drafted. Most projections had him as a seventh rounder or a preferred UDFA. Montez is kind of interesting um, because he's got prototypical size, good arm, and was um, you know a pretty high excitement recruit at Colorado who was pretty good uh, early in his career. And then um, I think started three full years, but just never really took that next step that everyone kept expecting him to because of the size and strength and the arm. And he's got some good mobility. And also, um, by all accounts, he's a really good leader. In fact, I saw an interview he gave after a game. In fact, the game uh, um, in which he returned from, I think, a performance-related benching. And um, he had performed very well, and they, they came back and won the game. And he gave a great interview um, demonstrating accountability, and he's very articulate. And uh, boy, he came off, he, I really liked the way he came off in the interview. He seemed smart and responsible and very aware. But anyway, if, if you read um, you know, draft profiles on him, they're all going to say, um, questionable football IQ, not the best decision maker, kind of um, slow, um, not slow moving, but slow processing in the pocket. A lot of his interceptions were just like pretty bad looking interceptions to obvious defenders. And uh, in, in his three years of, of primarily being the starting quarterback, Colorado just wasn't that great. But I would say it's interesting uh, for a couple of reasons. In, in a developmental qu- quarterback prospect who goes undrafted, I mean, what you're trying to find is the guy with the traits who you can then coach up, obviously, you know, and he's, he's got everything that you want. In fact, the, the issue with him was that he just didn't really blossom in college into what he should have based on his size, strength, arm, legs, personality, etc. And furthermore, I think, you know, if, if they were, I, I had in mind to keep a close eye on any quarterback they signed as a UDFA because um, the, the tandem of Ron and Scott Turner, um, they, they like these guys and they invest in them. And Kyle Allen was one in Carolina. So uh, Montez is, has an opportunity here and, and, and a chance. He will be given an opportunity to show that he belongs on a roster. I think he'll get a good, solid, legit look in camp, and he'll have to play himself out of it. And of course, a lot of teams keep three quarterbacks, and a lot of Ron Rivera's teams have kept three quarterbacks. And uh, I also think that based on the strengths that I listed, he's certainly the type of guy that if he makes it to the preseason, and if he gets in and gets some extended opportunity in mop-up time, um, I could totally see him being a preseason cult fave after throwing uh, you know, two long touchdowns to some anonymous slot receiver out of Towson. I think it's worth mentioning briefly that the Redskins are in really good uh, salary cap position still. I, I, I don't have every single detail in front of me, but I saw recently that as of right now, they're, I think they're back in the top five in terms of available salary cap space. This after, of course, being very frugal and conservative in free agency. They gave out the one fairly big deal to Kendall Fuller. Even that one wasn't huge. And after that, despite the size of their free agent class, really nobody else is getting paid. So they're in good position from that standpoint. And I think it frees them up to, number one, basically do whatever they want to do in free agency between now and the season if they want to. I'm not at all certain that they will, but they could fill what they perceive to be a remaining hole um, with you know, a, a higher profile veteran if they want. Or they could do what I'm hoping they will do, which is roll the bulk of it over into 2021 and spend it then when your rebuild is really in full swing and after which time you've identified which are truly the holes that you need to fill after hopefully some of these sort of um, cheaper, uh, high-risk, 
high reward flyer type signings from from this this past free agency class have have hit you know hopefully a couple of these guys you know maybe it's a sean davis or a ronald darby i mean those two examples those guys are both on short deals i think one-year deals so even if those guys do hit i mean you're still gonna have to pay them if you want to keep them but you know let let everything shake out let the dust settle on this year see who you brought in that's new but that pans out in your system and who you want to keep and then next year you'll have a bunch of cap to to retain those and um, you know, spend more on those hopefully fewer remaining holes. Now, if they do want to spend a little bit this year, I think um, you know the positions of potential need coming out of the draft are maybe left tackle if they don't have confidence in the guys uh, we talked about, definitely tight end, and possibly defensive back, specifically you know, free safety with Sean Davis coming off injury, and also corner, even though they they did sign a couple at those positions. I guess some potential people I would consider. Because I really feel that uh, you know, Ron is if he's gonna if he's gonna sign a veteran at those spots, it's either going to be a young guy who he sees sticking around, and I think that description is less likely to fit whoever might still be signed because he probably would have already done it by now. If that makes sense, I mean Cooper was one. By the way, I'm going to come back to Amari Cooper. Anyway, I'm not sure there are still young guys out there that the Redskins are interested in giving multi-year deals to. I think more likely they would be looking at vets with just totally impeccable character who would be unbelievable in the locker room and who he could trust to instill this new Redskins ethos. In my opinion, those guys could be Jason Peters. That one's very interesting because he's, he's old, but he's still good. He shares an agent with Trent Williams, this guy, Vince Taylor, who's just a total nincompoop. Uh, it would be really interesting if they signed Peters. That, that would actually honestly really say something, I think, say something good about um, Kyle Smith and Rob Rogers, the cap guy, if they could work out a deal with Jason Peters after what they just went through on Trent, that to me would indicate a, you know, some next level uh, professionalism. But Peters, coming back to the player, in addition to being really good, I mean, everyone says he's just unbelievable in the locker room in terms of leadership. So I could see that possibly happening. Um, at corner, a guy I have liked all along was Logan Ryan. Um, at one point, it, it seemed like he was kind of pricing himself out of the market, but he's a versatile corner. He played for Belichick. He was good in Tennessee. Same deal with him. Um, outstanding character, as far as I can tell. An interesting name still out there at safety is Eric Reed, who played for Ron with the Panthers. Um, Ron took him on after his little temporary exile, after the whole um, kneeling for the national anthem thing. And Eric Reed is another guy that's thought to be really, really good in the locker room. Now, I think his skill set is a little bit redundant with Landon Collins, so I'm, I, I mean, I don't know if there's, if there's room for him there, but that's, that name does kind of, it's in the back of my mind. And then at tight end, if they look at what they have um, and aren't satisfied that it's good enough, at least for 2020, um, a player who I don't, you know, I still think has a little left in the tank and who I knew the Redskins at least um, were into, uh, had, had, had kicked the tires on um, earlier this year is Delaney Walker um, of the Titans. He is worshipped in Tennessee for having A-plus character and also for being a very good player, of course. And um, the Redskins' new tight ends coach, Pete Hayner, was his tight ends coach in San Francisco back in the day. So that's four names there of veterans who I think maybe the Redskins could consider signing now in this post-draft period. That was um, Peters, uh, Logan Ryan, Eric Reed, and Delaney Walker. I think this is the last thing I wanted to mention. This kind of occurred to me earlier today. Actually, this idea was prompted by, um, by a, a, a tweet, a, a reply that somebody sent to me on Twitter. And uh, this astute thinker was um, asking, 
after Kyle Smith said in his um, in the press conference after the conclusion of of day three of the draft that uh, he and Ron had entered this this off season with the philosophy that they were just definitely not going to extend um, any Redskins with one remaining year on their contract without having had some time to get to know them first. And and of course the the two highest profile guys that this um, pertains to were Trent Williams and Quentin Dunbar, both of whom made a stink about it, and both of whom have since been sent packing. And so this person, uh, uh, username at DC Dribble, had this good question, what exactly is different about um, players in that category, including Trent and and Dunbar? Um, What is the difference between them and, say, Amari Cooper, who's never been a Redskin, yet to whom they were willing to throw $100 million? And I said to myself, uh, you're right. That's a fair question to ask. I think uh, it's, it's, it would be very hard to make the case that, that they know Amari Cooper better and, and can be more confident in their own evaluation of Amari Cooper than they can in their evaluations of Trent Williams and Quentin Dunbar. I mean, I know the coaches knew, but Kyle Smith has been here all along. And so I think what distinguishes them are two things. First of all, you just can't avoid the reality that you know, the Redskins, that uh, Williams and Dunbar are two assets that the Redskins already had under contract one more year. I mean, they had the, had them. <laughs> they didn't have to throw big money at him. Uh, the Redskins were in possession of them as players. So they needn't have felt compelled to throw big money at either of those guys in order to see them suit up in 2020. I know it's an obvious truth, but I mean, it's, it's real and you have to consider it. When you've got a, a budget, a defined amount that you can spend, and you're trying to prioritize you know, where, where bits and pieces of it are going to go, I think it's pretty reasonable to not spend first on guys who are already contracted to you. Maybe you come back to it, but you, you, know, you don't feel that you have to. The second thing is that I guess I, I don't feel that this rule, this uh, no extension to expiring contract players rule, would have been so hard and fast if these top executives had entered with strongly positive feelings or impressions of the players in question. In other words, it it does tell you something, it should tell you something, that they were willing to throw huge money at um, Amari Cooper, a cowboy, and that they weren't willing to throw it at Trent or Quinton. What it tells you is that they just don't think that Trent and Quinton are as good as those guys think they are. I think more money would have made a lot of things okay for Trent Williams. They probably could have shaken on this and buried it months ago if Ron had waltzed in and said immediately, I'm willing to pay you more. I bet that would have gotten straightened out real quick. But he wasn't. He had, I'm certain, heard some things from people, some holdovers in the building who said, listen, Trent's been kind of a jackass and his agent is a disaster. I suspect he heard from the man in charge, Dan Snyder himself, that the tension was still thick. And I think he looked at the tape and said, you know what? Trent didn't play it down in 2019. So it's number one, it's hard, hard to know what he still is right now. And number two, he was not a top five tackle in 2018. He had a lot of holding penalties. He missed some time and he just wasn't quite as bulletproof as he had been before. So Ron said, I don't want to make him the highest paid tackle in the NFL or even top two or three. And basically the same for Dunbar. I mean, he would have been asking for a smaller raise. But I think that they just weren't as high on either of those two guys as those guys are on themselves. And I think that they have, Kyle Smith in particular, has just been sweating Amari Cooper since he came out of Alabama. I've always had the impression and heard whispers that they loved him then, that they've wanted him then, 
since then and and that when he was made available by the Raiders that that they were on some level um, interested or, or possibly players. I think he checks all the boxes from the standpoint of being a young guy, tons of experience, highly productive, um, outstanding in the locker room. I know that they were willing to commit to Amari Cooper and make him a cornerstone, make him one of these half dozen foundational core players. Ron's been using the term core player over and over. They were confident making Amari Cooper a core player more so than they were at Trent Williams because they totally believed that Amari Cooper was going to be an exemplary culture guy. And I don't think they thought that they thought that about either Trent or Dunbar. And so there you have it. That's how that happens. That's how you end up throwing an outrageous contract at a guy outside the building, yet still having a public policy that you're going to make every current Redskin earn it. Okay, I lied. One more thing. Um, I'll make it quick. I think this is important, though. I think Kyle Smith is a really good scout and top executive. I think he's had good drafts recently. I love the way he carries himself in interviews. I absolutely am buying that he and Rivera have a highly functional working relationship. I think this is a good match that is going to last. I suspect that they will probably make him officially the GM later this year, or if not, then then maybe next year. I do think that he, that Kyle Smith is essentially in every important way already the GM. Clearly, he is not as influential or powerful powerful in the organization as Ron is. He he would be, he will be one of these GMs who is in some ways under the head coach rather than the traditional opposite. But I think that Rivera has been impressed by him since being hired here, and I think he is going to um, formally promote him soon. You might say, well, what does it matter whether he's officially called the GM in title or not? I mean, it, it, it probably doesn't in practice. I mean, in terms of the way that the team is run, the draft is run, and the way free agency takes place. But I'm sure that it does to Kyle Smith. First of all, he has said publicly um, more than once that that the ultimate goal of every scout, himself included, is to become a GM. So that title carries some weight, carries some gravitas, some meaning. That's something that he has no doubt been aspiring to since the beginning of his career. I'm certain that he wants it and that he would find it very meaningful. It also will definitely come with more money and more, even more influence in the organization. And I think those of us who appreciate his efforts and want him to stay should be hoping that this does happen because it would probably be the final necessary thing to keep him from being poached by another team with a vacancy sometime in the next couple of years. And I don't think I'm just being gullible in thinking that um, eventually that would be a legitimate risk. His reputation is clearly excellent throughout the league. And I think it is important that they can and should still officially make him the GM soon so we don't have to worry about the risk of losing him like we lost Sean McVay. As a fan and as a blogger and podcaster, I think that my enjoyment of the Redskins is likely to be maximized if they are good on the field and if they have a winning record and if they win playoff games and eventually a Super Bowl or two. I suspect most of you would agree with that for the most part. Winning is, if not the most important thing for fans, it's close. But as a discriminating fan and as a, as a blogger who likes to, to, to really dive into the details of how a team is run, and in fact, my whole interest in, in doing whatever this is that I do you know, with the Redskins is in exploring and detailing um, the very interesting things that, that can and must be done to assemble a good football team, a functional football team. Team building and planning and this uh, intricate combination of talent, coaching, scheme, 
accounting slash budgeting, leadership, the way all these things go go into a stew and, and produce a team that's either going to be good or bad. The way all these factors um, mix together and, and play together, it's fascinating to me. I, I mean, it's, it's what really, um, it's, it's why football is addicting to me. I mean, the sport itself is so visually arresting also. But I am, I mean, I'm, I'm into this. I'm so deeply into this because I'm kind of just obsessed with, you know, what, basically what works and what doesn't. You know, what, what um, strategies make teams win and which don't. And uh, do you always have to follow a blueprint or can you find your own way? Anyway, knowing, knowing deeply how the team is functioning and, and um, what their values and priorities are and what causes them to make their decisions is extremely important and useful to me in, in my being entertained and rewarded by studying the team. And so what I'm getting at is that I never had that when Bruce Allen was in charge. Everything was ultimately described as a Redskins decision. Um, nobody's individual responsibilities or decisions were, were ever clearly outlined for us as fans. So we really never knew who was good, who was bad in that front office. What was, what was the big plan? What was the small plan? Things just kind of happened and they didn't always fit together. And after a while, you know, there was just this sense of doom that no matter what they tried, it wasn't going to work. Well, Kyle Smith and Ron Rivera, when they talk, which is frequently, they talked at the combine at great length. They talked, um, after every day of this draft, uh, Rivera made himself available on Facebook for this virtual leadership luncheon. I mean, he talks, he's public, he's accessible and approachable. I think, it, first of all, it's important that they talked together after all three draft days, but they talk and they speak clearly and they demonstrate very clearly that they understand at least what they're doing. I mean, it's not obvious that they're geniuses, but it's obvious that they're thinking, that they have a plan, and it inspires such confidence. And there's so much value in that to me as a fan that even if it doesn't work, even if, you know, even if, if, if they, even if Rivera over these next few years isn't able to get them over that hump into being a legitimate playoff contender or Super Bowl contender, I am going to derive so much value from being able to correlate what they say they're going to do and what, and you know, how they describe the reasoning behind things they've done. And then, and then seeing how that translates to what actually happens on the field it is so refreshing. I mean, I don't, need, I don't need Kyle Smith to explain to me every little detail. I don't want him, in fact, to say exactly who they're targeting in the draft or exactly what they're asking for in a trade for Trent Williams. But he has been able to um, articulate his philosophies, his short and long-term goals, and it has inspired a great confidence in me. And I just appreciate it. And Rivera, too. I think when, when a leader um, is transparent and willing to face questions and face scrutiny. And when he's able to tell you, even generally, what he's thinking in a way that makes logical sense, it is so much easier and so much more pleasant to support him and his project. So I'm really excited about that. It's given me a new sense of enthusiasm for watching the Redskins, um, studying them, uh, tweeting, podcasting. I mean, I was, as, as many of you know, over the last few years, several times, very close to to quitting permanently um, this hobby. And in 2019, I took about eight months off because it was definitely starting to feel like it wasn't worth it at all. And I, I mean, I don't, again, who, who could say whether the Redskins are actually going to become a quote, good team anytime in the next couple of years? I don't know. I mean, th- you know, there's Kool-Aid, um, there's Kool-Aid in high supply every April and every August. But I'm, I'm very pleased with how things are working right now. I feel rejuvenated in um, my plans to follow the team closely. And I think Kyle, um, Kyle Smith 
should and does have an excellent chance of officially becoming a GM sometime in the next few months. And I think he's going to be good at it. And I think he's going to be a Redskin for a long time. And it will not shock me one bit if he is one of the key decision makers in deciding who will um, follow Rivera as head coach of the Redskins whenever that time comes, whether by firing or retirement. So here's to hopeless optimism.